This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Psyche Williams-Forson, who is the author of Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America, new from the University of California Press. Psyche, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much um, for having me. I wonder if you might tell us just a bit about uh, yourself and your background and how it is that you came to this project. Sure. Well, I am uh, a professor at the University of Maryland College Park, um, and I have been studying uh, food and culture for some 20 some odd years. Mm. And in particular, I'm uh, interested in uh, culture, uh, food cultures of uh, those who would be considered among the African diaspora. So that's uh, African-American people here in the U.S., um, but throughout the um, the world globally. And so in my first book, Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power, I um, talked about the ways in which African-American people um, have done phenomenal uh, kinds of work with food, in particular with chicken. In the course of traveling uh, throughout the U.S., talking about that book, a lot of things were happening in the U.S. Um, in terms of change. And so one of those things, <clears throat> excuse me, is refrigeration uh, came into being at dollar stores and um, low-cost centers. Um, another thing that started happening was we had a resurgence and a return to um, cooking and, and creating one's own food, growing your own food. And so I was getting a lot of questions about how do we get people to eat better? How do we get people to grow gardens? Do you think this community would want um, a garden? Do you think this community would want this, that, and the other? But what was happening, Stephen, quite frankly, was along with those very good questions was a lot of moralizing, right? So folks were sort of taking this position of, well, the best thing you can do is grow your own food. And if you're not, you 
you know, kind of folks were walking away from those conversations feeling like they're not good people. So I started to really think about this um, over time and felt like I, I should share my own experiences with, with these kinds of conversations and how they might hit other people's ears, right? Because the intent is really to be healthy beings. But sometimes with that intention, we sort of have a, a one-up on the other person uh, if they continue to eat in a way that many of us might see as unacceptable. Along with that, I, I find that I was finding that a lot of this moralizing was taking place um, in opposition to Black people. And I, 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 I share a litany of, of uh, recent events that we have seen from one that took place in the Washington, D.C. area where a random metro rider posted a picture and a tweet of a metro worker eating on the train. Um, really in an effort to shame and humiliate this person, not realizing that the rules had been changed and that that Metro worker was doing exactly what they were supposed to do. Um, Being called, having the police called on you at a cookout because you and your family are out enjoying a summer day, Um, having the police called on you while sitting in Starbucks. Things of this nature were becoming way more prevalent, even leading up to the summer of 2020 and the murder of George Floyd. And so part two of what I do with this book is try to open up this conversation to think about why are we surveilling other people in a way that could lead to them actually losing their lives, right, when the police are called? Why are we, you know, going to such pains and lengths to to ridicule and tell other people about their eating when we're all really here just kind of trying to move through the earth as gently as we can. So these are the reasons why I felt the need to write the book um, when I did. So why don't we pick up from there with, with a question that you ask later in the book, and I will, I will ask it of you. Uh, as you write, what is it about Black people in the act of eating that drives some people absolutely nuts? Right, right, right. What is it? Right. right. What, do you, what do you think is going on there? Um, right. And maybe because, you know, you, you're explicit in the book that that your principal audience is, in fact, African-Americans themselves. But of course, a lot of what we see is this deeply embedded white directed racism. So I wonder if, if you could answer that and maybe sort of help us think through how is this different when white folks are engaged in it versus sort of between black communities? How does that play out differently? And how do we make sense of what's going on here. Okay. Um, and, and there's a couple of things. I'm not always certain that it plays out. It does play out differently, but sometimes it actually plays out similarly and, um, and is a catalyst, if you will. One community's uh, behavior is a catalyst for another. So what do I mean by that? Um <clears throat> Yes, my part of my argument um, in uh, eating while black is that everyone has their food shamed at, at one point or another, right? But that black people tend to be <clears throat> much more 
surveilled. And this is not new, right? This is this is comes from um, the era of enslavement, um, ha- insla- plantation households, and 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 architecture and landscapes were built and designed in a way that would allow the uh, plantation owners to watch um, the enslaved. But what we know from from uh, lots of different studies that have been done is it was a panoptical relationship. That is, if you can see me, I can see you too. So enslaved people were also watching, uh, you know, um, these white plantation owners. Why is that important? Because when you start talking about food and surveillance um, and policing of Black people's bodies and ways of being, that's just it. You're trying to stop folks from living in a truth that works best for them. Where I really see this happening is in uh, migratory communities. Um, I did some work for a while at a pregnancy aid center, and in speaking with some of the folks who run the center, one of their biggest challenges were women who were who were pregnant, um, who have uh, um, are familiar with a particular diet, and that diet is satiating, that diet is fulfilling, um, all of that, right? And then they come to the States, and they're being told by nutritionists, you need to adhere to a certain number of calories, right? Well, how do you get those calories from the foods that I eat, the foods that are going to help me feel like I'm at home? And so that actually, believe it or not, became a real sticking point for a lot of the clients because they were being told to change their diet in the middle of trying to nest and also prepare their bodies, minds, and environments for for a new person. And that can really be a challenge. And it did often lead to food shaming. Well, you know, I don't even know what these foods are. You shouldn't even be eating them, blah, blah, blah. And these things happen far often, more often than we would believe. Um, oftentimes, people don't mean any harm, but when we're flippant with each other around the things that we embrace and use and that are helped to define us, then that creates room for conflict and division. And I mean, to pick up there, it it. it beyond merely being about nutrition, food for most of us, I think it is fair to say, often has deep personal and familial and cultural meanings. And that too much of the kind of surveillance and policing that you talk about, maybe especially from those sort of well-meaning dietitians who, who purport to be concerned about one's health, seem often to be utterly blind to the other kinds of needs that food may fulfill. Does that seem fair to say? It's fair to say. And and I think it's, it's for a couple of different reasons, two of which are food is very commonplace, right? We all eat. So it's one of those things like air. You don't really necessarily assign meaning to food in the ways that requires to kind of stop in our tracks. You know what I mean? I mean, we all know food has a lot of meaning, but when you stop to really think about it, then, you know, folks often are aghast and they're like, oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. But yeah, you're talking about a set of objects that are as deeply personal to us as our cell phones, our clothes, our homes, the the cars or modes of transportation we use, all of that. 
food is a part of that because we uh, things mean a lot to us and we have take a lot of meaning from our things and food is part of the constellation of objects that we call things. Now, the other part of this is that, um, so things are intensely personal and I think we, again, may have the conversation, but few of us connect the dots to say, if this means so much to you, it probably is attached to your memories, your culture, and your heritages. Very few of us keep going with that leap. Because again, it's just, it's food, you know, it's potato right. chips, it's popcorn, it's, you know, <laughs> so we don't, you know, it's drinks. So we don't really think about all of that. Um, when in fact, those are the things, memory, right, is very much embedded in food and it helps um it helps us to survive in at times when we are without anything else that remind us a home. Food can be that that bridge, right? So yeah, it's it's very important, but I just don't think that most of us think about it in that way. So not just memory, of course, right? But it's but it's history as well. And you talk about the many ways in which which even arguably right for food study scholars and others who want to know better, continue to talk about sort of this notion that black food culture evolved from scraps supposedly being the only food available. Um, and of course, we know that historically that's just wrong. But I'm, I'm curious to hear you think about how and why has that come to be so widely believed? It seems like that's serving a function in some ways. Yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a trope of, of pulling oneself up by your bootstraps. <clears throat> which we also know is is not um, as true as we would like for it to be. There are very few of us in this lifetime who can get anywhere, do anything alone. Uh, so pulling your own self up by by your own uh, means is just um, most of the time as as inaccurate as as anything else. You know, there's a <clears throat> a long time uh, historian and scholar Thomas Schlereth who wrote about the fallacies of history. Um, and this is one of those fallacies of history. You know, Black folks, when you're surrounded by forestry, when you're surrounded by creeks and rivers and uh, woods and berry, uh, berries and nuts, you know, very few folks are going to just allow themselves to starve, even though you're, you're standing in the middle of a smorgasbord, right? Um, and Black folks came to this country with a wealth of agricultural knowledge, as well as that of husbandry and uh, of how to uh, move about forestry. So while, yes, we may have been given those foods on some plantations, because we also have to remember enslavement lasted over two, three centuries, right? And centuries are a hundred. So we're talking over the course of 300 years, number one. And number two, um, farms and plantations evolved over time. And that none of what you are, what, what folks have decided fits the narrative of black people, right? Oh, you all come from scraps. That's why your food is so horrible. It fits a bit. None of that actually is borne out in the written record that was left mostly by planters because they had the power of the pen. Um, and so if you go back and read planters' diaries, you're not seeing this narrative of, you know, just abject lack uh, as a wholesale kind of, of enterprise because it didn't benefit their bottom line for one as needing healthy laborers. 
it also, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that, that something else at work there is that, that sort of by denying that much richer tradition of, 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 of black culinary traditions that, that emerge, at least in part from enslaved people's experiences, that's another way in which you deny uh, a rich, vibrant culture and a people with their own kinds of traditions and creativity and means of creating wondrous, magical things, right? Is, is that some of what's at work there as well, you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, by adhering to one part of the narrative, you know, Black folks' culinary um, desire and, and heritage is derived from scraps. By leaving the story there, you don't have to engage the part about the ingenuity, right? Or you don't have to engage the part about the creativity or the survivalist instincts, because none of that fits the narrative that white supremacy needs to put forward about the fact that Black folks are as competent and capable as any other race of people on this earth. Um, That's not the narrative. The narrative has been always um, that Black folks are less than human, um, they're incapable, they're in need of surveillance, they're infantile, all the, all the sort of negative, you know, um, uh, narratives we have heard over, over the course of our, our lifetime. And so by, not, by, by leaving everything in the realm of the scrap, you don't have to celebrate any of the rest of those realities of Black people's lives. We've put our families through school. We've built houses. We have uh, built churches. We've helped to build colleges um, through our culinary uh, ingenuity. But that does not fit the narrative that most often is alive and present in the United States around Black people. I think you've in part answered the question I'm about to ask, but I'm going to ask it again and see if there's anything that you want to add to it. You write that uh, racism is embedded deeply and disturbingly in food. I think we could fairly argue that that anti-Black racism is embedded deeply and disturbingly in almost all aspects of U.S. politics, culture, society, economics. So what do you what do you think that that by focusing sort of on the ways in which this appears in food, we gain new insights into those larger kinds of of anti-black discrimination and racism? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons that I felt the need to make that statement so emphatically is because people don't believe that food is a carrier of these kinds of right. messages. It's just food, right? Right. It's just food, right? <laughs> and so the 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 bigger issue for me there, is simply making the declaration, right? And then trying to encourage people to just stop and think about it Um, because food tends to be off on its own and very benign. We expect it, maybe it happens in policy, maybe it happens over here, maybe it happens over there, but in food, how can food be tied to race? So that really was the aim um, to make people aware rather than disprove that it it doesn't exist, right? So what do we learn new? Well, one, we learn about the power, again, of our material world and the ways in which objects in general are often weaponized and can be weaponized toward an agenda of supremacy, of white supremacy, right? Which is very different from um, 
oh, I'm just going to eat my Sunday dinner and it's going to be, you know, what it is, right? What I'm trying to help people to see is, no, these gestures, these kinds of performances that we do, whether we're at home, out in public or what have you, also have a lot of meaning, right? And oftentimes they fulfill a meaning and an agenda of racism, whether we are aware of it or not, they are part of these larger racial projects, Everything as simple as ordering food and what you choose to order. Black History Month's around the corner. I can bet you some university is going to have a soul food dinner or fried chicken or what, and not understand why that could be problematic, right? So, um, or you may see it advertised at a grocery store. Um, it's so that we can understand why a shooting by a white supremacist in Buffalo, New York, in a black community, egregious as it is, um, and, and, and horrifying as it is, also directly affects food. This thing happened in a space where people thought they were safe, where people felt like they were at home, where folks could relax to some extent, where they could focus on their families. Um, so not only have you, um, again, maliciously killed people, but now you've disrupted a center of, of, of space, a third space perhaps, um, that some people go to enjoy. It's my understanding that they now have a counseling centers set up near the, the, near the grocery store. Um, because for a lot of people, that's a, haunt, a site of haunting and it's a site of trauma. And they'll never be able to go back. So even something like that, where we talk about the intertwining of food, race, and violence, um, makes a difference. Woolworth lunch counter, right? Same kind of, yeah. So I, I was trying to help people to see food has always been interconnected with racism um, on multiple different levels, um, including and, um, and even in the face of whatever good intentions we may have. So let's turn back to, to something I made reference to earlier, and I'll, 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 Glenn, quote you back to you if you'll indulge me. <laughs> no right. Some African-Americans use objects like food and other accoutrements to exert superiority over those they deem inferior or less worthy than themselves. What should we know about the ways in which this plays out internally amongst and within Black peoples and communities and how that may differ from sort of the kinds of shaming and judgments that dominant white culture is making against those communities? Right. And I'm not really sure that it necessarily does have a difference. It might. It might. Um, but that, but the difference might simply be um, in the way in which it's executed. Let me give you... Um, an example of one way in which it plays out in Black communities is around class, right? And so um, making judgments about the decisions that people um, choose for for different kinds of meals, things like, oh, I don't eat chitlins or eating chicken at your desk is ghetto or I can't believe you still eat sweet potato pie, we eat pumpkin, you know, literally those kinds of things or... Um, talking about a meal and, you know, going on and on about ingredients that no one has ever heard of to exert a sort of sense of 
um, culture or a sense of of um, of high class, you know, sensibilities, right? So that's how it may play out between and among Black folks. We tend to at times adopt a position that we think uh, will perhaps curry some kind of favor with our audience and uh, and positive positivity among our audience. When in fact, what ends up happening is we. Um, our, our, our participation is rebuked oftentimes, thus making you feel even more ashamed. Let me give you a quick example from the book. I talk about having attended a lecture where the speaker, who's a well-known um, you know, uh, activist around food, talked about eating clean and eating local. And then after the presentation, a couple of young black women stood up and said, you know, I just completely cut X, Y, and Z out of my diet. And I think by the second speaker, um, uh, second person who gave their testimony, our guest lecturer essentially said, wow, you know, you all's responses are extreme. As opposed to validating the, the decisions that these women made and are feeling the need to testify about, they pretty much were told, uh, you're over the top for deciding you're going to stop eating milkshakes because that nobody told you to do that. That was so extreme. So that's how it may play out um, as a form of shaming outside the community. And there are lots of other examples um, in the book, anything from a person coming to me saying, we need to get these people to stop eating the way that they do so that they can live longer. Just a, a benign statement like that to, to the example of, um, that I just gave. Yeah. And that, that, of course, those kinds of conversations are absolutely pervasive among uh, folks who work in communities around issues of, of poverty and access and income, right? It's sort of the fight for grocery stores and what kind of quality food is available and how do we alter people's behavior and it's a uh, lot about altering people's behavior. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> it's, right? It's and the notion that that if um, if we make a grocery store with all of the you know the fresh fruits and vegetables and all the things that we have decided are the way that people ought to eat uh, available, then 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 they will finally understand what it is that is in their own interest. Right? There's very right. much and to a, what in right yeah. and to what in as I as I have said. In, in several other public um, addresses, you know, the list of things that can kill me as a black person in America is long and food is somewhere probably at the bottom. Um, I would not give it currency to be at the top of the list, right? And so, but by us continuing to put this focus on black folks and our foods and tie it to, oh, you know, your bodies are unhealthy, also read as unruly, your bodies are, you know, negative, your bodies aren't beautiful. It's a, it's really a sort of mental um, playing of a script over and over, right? Um, so yes, we're going to celebrate your food cultures on high on the hog, but what we're not going to tell you is that oftentimes those food cultures took place in majority Black communities that have been decimated and wiped out by gentrification or this, that, and the other. We're not going to take the conversation further because we need you to be focused just on this one part where everything is rosy and bright, um, but nothing is really reflective of 
the the real issues that are affecting black health right. we'll, and we'll, we'll talk about high rates of hypertension and point to your eating choices but we're not going to talk about the research that talks about what happens when you encounter a white doctor and the kinds of treatment exactly. you're likely to get in the hospital exactly or the or the many aggressions you deal with every day being qualified but but looked over or being paid less than or not having access to health insurance or living around environmentally unsound places where the racism uh, is rampant because you still don't have running water, uh, you know, many years later in Flint or in Jackson, Mississippi. No, we're not going to talk about any of those things, but we are going to tell you that you're going to die if you keep eating bacon, even though everybody in the South, for the most part, you know, um, cooks or, or perhaps eats uh, bacon and, and whole milk and, and whole eggs and all of these kinds of things. But we're not going to point attention to that. We're going to deflect and show you how your food is problematic. And arguably another way to avoid talking about systems and structures and and root solutions in alterations in individual behavior, right? That's right. That's right. We're going to we're going to have this neoliberal look at everything pointing to you controlling your own desires. So here we circle back to a question you asked me earlier. What is it about black eating that exhibits or that elicits such strong reactions? I think and I and I will continue to say this black joy. It's like America does not want to see black people enjoy in any moments of joy, because joy also is a tool and a vehicle for liberation, you see. And if Black folks discovered how much power we had to liberate ourselves, it would blow this country wide open. So let's not focus on the joy that you get from just everyday eating, drinking, dancing, talking, living, you know, dressing, what all the many things that we now see folks do on a daily basis if you if you are are active on social media. Let's not focus on those things that give you joy. Let's continue to feed these narratives to you that make you uh, think you're inferior or you're less than and whatnot, because that's what's going to help produce the worker that we need to continue to develop black uh, wealth in this country. This is the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we've been listening to Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson and her dog tell us about her excellent new book, Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America, from University of North Carolina Press. Psyche, thank you so much for joining us today. Really much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me and my dogs. I appreciate <laughs> and I appreciate that.